0: War in the end times. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. We're going to be reading the first eight verses and we're going to be going to a lot of different, different, different places. Psalm 83, verses 1 through 8. It begins a prayer against enemies, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a prophet. He was a person who lived during the Davidic kingdom between David and Solomon. So this this psalm was written three thousand years ago, approximately. Listen to what it says. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered. No war, no more. In other words, let's exterminate them. Let's obliterate them. Let's destroy any vestige that they were ever here. Verse 5. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Moab and the Hagarites. Gebal. Ammon. Amalek. Philistia. With the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped... The children of Lot. And then it says, Selah, which is a Hebrew word which literally means pause, stop. It can also mean think about it. Pause and think about it. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 And four and five, Jesus begins to talk about the signs that would lead up to the end. And in verse six, he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. But some people are troubled. Jesus says, see that you are not troubled. But few things will generate more disturbance than when you begin to understand and see what's happening. People wonder how close are we to the end? The Bible predicted in advance the invasion of Israel by the Assyrians and the Bible predicted in advance the invasion by the Babylonians. And remarkably, the Bible predicted a future invasion of Israel by a confederation of nations. Literally hundreds of books have been written about the prophecies that are listed in the Bible concerning those things that have yet to take place. And so why is this important? Because it speaks of your place and my place and our place in God's kingdom and in the future kingdom. In other words, as we ask and we answer this question, it isn't just about having interesting information about what the future holds, but it is to remind you, remind you, remind you that you are citizens of another kingdom. You have dual citizenship. You're citizens here, but you're also citizens in heaven. But for some, this isn't important for some people. The history of humanity is so inundated with war that the real story are those peaceful moments, those limited windows when nothing is happening. Several years ago, the Canadian Army Journal issued an article written by the former president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences in cooperation with historians from England and Egypt and Germany and India. They calculated the history of war and warfare since 3600 B.C., the world has only known 292 years of peace. During that period, they calculated 14,532 wars. Now, the number has increased since this article was written. Large, small, in which three billion six hundred and forty million people have been killed over the course of human history, the value of that destruction would pay for a golden belt around the world one hundred and fifty six kilometers that 's ninety seven point two miles imagine A highway of gold that was 97 miles wide that circumferenced the entire planet Earth. There's not that much gold on the planet Earth. That just gives you an idea of how much it would cost. Since 650 BC, there have been 1,656 arms races, of which only 16 have not ended in war. The remainder always established the collapse of the economy of the nations or civilizations involved. Another scholar researched wars from 1496 B.C. to 1861 A.D., covering a period of 3,258 years. He calculated 227 years of peace, 3,130 years of war, or 13 years of fighting for every year of peace. In the last three centuries, there have been 286 wars in Europe. He added that from the year 1500 B.C. to AD 1860, which is the beginning of our Civil War, there were some 8,000 peace treaties signed that when these peace treaties went into effect, they were supposed to last forever. Out of... The 8,000 treaties signed, you know what the average length of the treaty was? 24 months. Jesus warned of wars and rumors of wars. But he also encouraged his disciples, don't panic in matthew chapter twenty four in mark chapter thirteen which we're studying on sunday mornings you'll remember that in Mark's chapter thirteen he writes three times don't be deceived mark thirteen one don't be afraid mark thirteen nine don't be ignorant mark thirteen fourteen through twenty seven in matthew 's gospel the disciples ask jesus three questions in matthew twenty four verse three when will the temple be destroyed answer luke chapter twenty one verses twenty through twenty four The question isn't even answered in the book of Matthew. What's supposed to be the sign of his coming? Answer Matthew 24, 29 through 44. What's the sign of the end of the age? Answer Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 28. Jesus answers two questions that the disciples don't even ask. The question about. Jesus coming for his church in Matthew 24, 45 through chapter 25, verse 30, and then his judgment on the Gentile nations in Matthew, chapter 25, verse 31 in the Olivet Discourse, which is that big chapter 24 and the tiny chapter of Mark, chapter 13. Jesus will speak of false Christs, wars, famines, death, events leading up to the end martyrs, worldwide chaos, worldwide preaching. And then in both Mark 13 and Matthew 24, it says, and then the end. The end of what? Well, God has a plan and a purpose. In Daniel chapter 7 and then again in Daniel chapter 9, The book of Daniel speaks of the unfolding of human governments. During the time of the captivity from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Greek Empire to the Roman Empire to the coming of Jesus Christ. And then there is a rapid fire revelation concerning the growth of humanity and then the collapse of humanity. And shortly after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Romans occupied Jerusalem. And if you could march forward into history, you would see the Byzantines occupying. Jerusalem and the Christians occupying Jerusalem, the Muslims occupying Jerusalem, and then remarkably again, after against all odds, the Jews come back in 1948. From 1948 to 1967, the country expands. In 1967, Jerusalem is reunited for the first time since its destruction in 70 A.D. Are all wars prophetic? No. Are all wars prophetic? In one sense, yes. In one sense, they speak of the drama that has already taken place in heaven because it becomes a type and a picture of the of the reality that there are two supernatural forces at work in the universe, the forces of God and the forces of Satan. And these are at enmity with one another. And Paul talks about it in Galatians, the 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 war of the flesh and the spirit and and the war In the spirit world, it's talked about again in Ephesians chapter 6, there's a war, there's a supernatural conflict as the world itself is vying for attention. There are wars and there are conflicts because human beings are fallen and they are sinners and they are in need of a savior. And both James and Paul talks about the issues surrounding war and identifies the problems associated with it and the origins of it. Because human beings want what other human beings want. So we evaluate wars in light of of God's word, but we pay close attention, specific attention to what's going on in the Middle East. As a matter of fact. There's been an Israeli war in 1948. There was the retribution operations between 1951 and 55, and then the Suez War in 1956, the Six Day War in 1967, the War of Attrition in between 1967 and 1970, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the South Lebanon conflict in 78, the First Lebanon War in 82, the South Lebanon conflict between 1982 and the year 2000. Then you had the First Intifada between 87 and 90. The second intifada between 2000 and 2004. The second Lebanon war in 2006. The Gaza war, which began in 2008 until tonight. But something's different about yesterday and today. Joel Rosenberg reports that for the first time since 1973, Syria has fired rockets on Israel and Israel has fired back. Back. There is something happening in the Middle East. Those of you who have been following the news, you understand. You understand that Israel is surrounded by a number of different uh, neighbors who want to see Israel destroyed. Iran is right on the precipice, on the very verge of getting nuclear capability. And guess what? Even during our presidential debates, most of the people understood that that went to the forefront of our foreign policy considerations. But you need to understand something. Iran isn't ready to confront Israel. They don't have nuclear capability right now. A conventional war fought by Israel with Iran would be devastating for Iran and would set back their nuclear acquisition possibly forever. And so Iran has a strategy, and that is Iran must be able to put Israel on notice and distract Israel and fight a surrogate war through proxies. Those proxies are Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah to the north, so that if the resources, the time, the circumstances, the mental, the emotional, but also the, the financial and military expenditures can go, then it's going to weaken, weaken, weaken Israel until, until Iran is ready to, to, to do whatever it is that Iran thinks it wants to do, but... They've made it very abundantly clear that they want to see Israel gone. So what's happening? What's happening in Egypt? What's happening in Syria? As Syria is getting ready to collapse. Our country doesn't seem to want to get involved with the brutal unrest that's taking place in the country. And the country's leader is a guy named Bashir Assad. Will he like his counterparts in Egypt and his counterparts in Libya, be replaced by radical Islamists. Turkey and Syria are poised for war. Shots have been exchanged between both Syria and Turkey, and Turkey has threatened Syria. And the NATO alliance, this is the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which signed a pact that says if any member nation is attacked, then all members must respond. So here's the question with the collapse of the former Soviet Union, with the nuclear proliferation in China and in Russia, with Pakistan having nuclear capability and India having nuclear capability. Do you think that the world is more susceptible to harm or less susceptible to harm today? I think you would be right. And so, again, when you see the circumstances Of the world right at this very moment is global terror increased or decreased. I don't think it's decreased. It is increased. Bible teachers are asking the question. What comes next? You're asking that same question, aren't you? What can we expect Right now, are we going to just see another skirmish like we did in 1956, 1967, 1973, 1981? Is this just another problem in a long line of problems? Or is the Middle East heating up for a war that may be described in the Bible? You see, Bible teachers are trying to piece that prophetic puzzle together. Oddly enough, the Bible speaks of a future invasion in Israel in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. The Bible also speaks of another invasion of Israel in Revelation chapter 16 and 19. Then we have the interesting passage that we've just read in Psalm 83, invasion in Israel 38 and 39. Ezekiel, Revelation 16 and 19, invasion of Israel, Psalm 83, invasion of Israel. Prophecy teachers say, are all of these different facets of one gigantic invasion or are these three separate invasions? How are we to think about the Bible and the pieces of the puzzle Will there be another global war before the coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church? What does the Bible say? And in order to understand the wars of the future, you have to understand the great war. The great war that's described in the Bible. The great war in the past between God and Satan. That is found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Many of you are familiar with the passages, so I'm I'm not going to belabor the point. But in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verses 12 through 15, we read... How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, which is the grave or the pit or the place of the dead to the lowest depths of the pit. And then there's another challenge that's given in Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. The Bible talks about the casting down of Satan in the past. It talks about the. Casting down of Satan in the future in Revelation chapter 12 verses 7 through 12. The Bible speaks of the final revolt of Satan in Revelation chapter 20 verses 7 through 10. But why is all of this important to you? Because the war is in heaven and on earth. The war concerns individuals. It concerns Nations, it, con- it concerns c- civilizations. So, does the Bible give us clues of the wars? Will they take place before we finish this message? It isn't inconceivable, is it? Given the circumstances that we're facing right now, is it possible that Pakistan could feel like a confederation of Arab states are being threatened? Could it be possible that someone might do something that would cause a dramatic going forward in an escalation of war that could literally catch the Middle East on fire? Could it happen right at this very moment? I'm going to suggest to you possibly. Fox News reported just a few days ago. Will the Middle East derail Obama's agenda? I picked up the article, read it with interest. The article discussed current foreign policy considerations that neither sanctions, negotiations have stopped Iran's determination to get nuclear weapons. The article suggests the president's unwillingness to provoke a Middle East war, that Israel will, will most likely be forced to launch an attack for their own survival. The article suggests that President Obama does not war, want war with a Muslim country. Who does? Who does? Does anybody want a war? Not really. But it's this article, the author of this article's position that a war would create backlash by Muslims on the street, further prospects of terrorism against the United States, the possibility of delaying rather than destroying Iran's chances for nuclear development, and that the president also fears that war will cause oil prices to rise to unsustainable levels, and then that would put our economic recovery at risk, and it would, wouldn't it? If you woke up day after tomorrow and gas prices went to four dollars, And then by Thanksgiving, it was $5. And then by Christmas, it was $7. And then by New Year's Eve, it was $10 a gallon. Would that have an effect on you personally? Do you think it would have an effect on our economic recovery? I laugh when I even say those two words in in a single sentence. So the United States has two possible options. Act or don't act. That's pretty clear, pretty simple. Don't do anything or do something. If they don't do anything, what will Israel's response be? Israel will do what's necessary. Benjamin Netanyahu has already made it abundantly clear he will do whatever is necessary to protect his country. But did you know that Benjamin Netanyahu faces a re-election campaign himself in January 2013? So, it prompts questions. What will this administration do with Egypt? What will this administration do with Syria? What will this administration do with the Middle East? And by the way, think about it. What if our country decided to export our so-called rights to Middle Eastern countries? Do you think that Muslim countries are open to abortion on demand? See, you're laughing because of the ridiculousness of the statement. Do you think that Muslim countries are open to same-sex marriage? Do you think that Muslim countries are open to recreational drug use? I think so, if the opium fields are any indication. This is why I'm going to create a Cheetos patch. As a money making tool to reduce and then eliminate the debt of our church. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You see, once again, our country is faced with a deep problem. And the problem isn't just economic, and it isn't political, and it isn't just even ideological, it's deeply religious and it's deeply spiritual. Because each and every one of you should have asked this question. Why is this important? Why is the survival of Israel important? What do Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 and 39 have in common? How are they different? Dave Reagan and Bill Salus and others believe that the next great prophetic war Isn't going to be the war of Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Their thinking is that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Israel is described as dwelling securely in unwalled villages. As a matter of fact, the scenario that's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we're going to cover later on, is Israel is living securely. Would you say that hundreds of rockets being fired at you from Hamas and Hezbollah? Does that does that lead you to believe secure or insecure? Yeah, I'm thinking insecure, too, too. It says that Israel will live in unwalled villages. By the way, the last time we were in Israel, we saw a wall that has been built right in the middle of the country in order to separate Israel from the Palestinian authorities. Does that sound like walled or unwalled? It sounds like walled. Israel is living in constant threat. Imagine if similar circumstances took place in the United States. And again, I love Mexico. My, my wife's family is from there. But imagine in Tijuana or imagine in Juarez. They started firing rockets into El Paso or San Diego. Let's um, imagine. Imagine. You you don't read it in drudge. You get it on CNN. Mexico has launched 100 rockets into civilian sectors of San Diego. What would our country do? Annihilate them would be a good place to start. In other words, would our country say, we're okay with this? This is we're comfortable with this. No, our country would go. We're going to seize Mexico and take all of their oil reserves. And now our economic problems are over with. And we don't have to worry about an immigration policy. The immigration policy is solved. But Israel. And see this. And I need you to understand something today. Israel is at the tipping point. Today. Today. They had a drone. They located the Hamas leader in Gaza and they blew him to Muslim heaven. Yeah, no, no, I I think you should clap. He was a war criminal. He is responsible for the deaths and kidnapping of innocent people. And they said, guess what? We're done. We can't live in constant threat under these kinds of circumstances. The Jewish people continue to build and expand, but that is impossible under the circumstances. And and again, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, the allies of Russia are Persia, which is Iran, Kush, which is probably modern Sudan, Put, which is Libya. And possibly Algeria and Tunisia. And so in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when you look at the coalition of forces that invade Israel, what is interesting to me is there's no mention of the nations that share a common border with modern Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Gaza. And so Bible teachers ask the predictable question, well, where are they? Um, I... They've already communicated Iran hates you. Now, Jordan has been relatively good. There has been a peace treaty in Egypt today. 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 I'm not making this up. Egypt indicated that they might be willing to respond based on the attacks that are taking place right now. And by the way, Egypt is in the hands of, a, of an Islamist regime. So, Lebanon, when I was in college... One of my roommates was from Beirut. There was a fairly significant Christian population in Lebanon, which has, in the last 30 years, been severely compromised. Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Gaza. So, where are these allies? And why aren't they with Russia and Sudan and Libya and Algeria and Tunisia? And some Bible writers have suggested one of two things is true. The people who are discussed in Psalm 83, the psalm that we just read, either this is a second facet of this invasion or this is a separate invasion. There's good persuasive reason To believe that it might be a separate invasion. Let's go back to the psalm. It refers to a war of extermination. Look what it says. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not stand still, O God. For behold, your enemies make atonement. And those who hate you have lifted up your head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. And consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, quote, come. And let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Do you know what the United Arab leadership has consistently said? Israel is a cancer. Israel is a germ. Israel is a pestilence. Israel is a sore. Israel is is, is something that is abominable and, and can't be tolerated. And so... The psalm written by Asaph was a petition for supernatural help. It describes a plot to wipe Israel off the map. And the right Bible question that each and every one of you should be asking is, is this psalm a prediction of something that has already taken place in the past? Or is this a prediction of something that could take place in the future? Well, there are those who would argue that there is at least a partial fulfillment in Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verses one through 30. Those of you who are familiar with your Bible and you've read Second Chronicles, you'll remember the story of King Jehoshaphat. You'll remember that King Jehoshaphat was one of the only handful of kings of Judah. Remember, the kings fell into two categories, those that did right in the eyes of the Lord and those that didn't. King Jehoshaphat was one of those guys who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He actually, um, the, the Bible says he pleased the Lord in some things. He appointed godly judges throughout the land to deal justly with the people. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then he learned that there was a vast army that was coming from the east of the Dead Sea, a united group of tribes and nations that were coming against him. He proclaims a public fast in verse three. He prays a public prayer in verses four through 12 in second Chronicles chapter 20 verses one through 30. He assembles the people in this new courtyard in the temple and they begin to cry out to God and they begin to plead with God and the Lord hears their prayer and he prepares the people for a great victory And the enemy was defeated. But I'm going to suggest to you. That there wasn't. A complete. Listing. That it becomes a type and a picture. Of yet a future war. As a matter of fact. In verse four, when it says come. And let us cut them off from being a nation. I want you to think for just a moment. Remember what we've said already. What or who has inspired Israel's extinction? Satan is the right answer. Satan is the right answer. Satan places in the mind and the heart of the people destroy Israel. This is the psalm 3000 years ago. This Is the group of nations that want them gone then? Don't you find it remarkable that you can have 3,000 years of that kind of animosity, bitterness, division, hatred, and a deep desire for the extinction of the people of God? Now, we have to ask the second question Satan inspires their extinction. Why does Satan want Israel gone? Some of you came up with the right answer. Satan wants Israel gone because God has unfinished business with Israel. In other words, Satan's greatest delight is to prove that God is wrong and that he is right. Satan wants Israel gone and Satan wants you gone. This is why the New Testament says that your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. Why is it that Satan wants you gone? One of two reasons. If you're unsaved so that you can rot in hell. And if you are saved, to destroy your witness, to destroy your ministry. To undermine your gifts and callings. Because if he can do that, he can retard the plans of God. So why does God want Israel gone? Be- why does Satan want Israel gone? Because of God's promise to preserve the nation forever in Genesis chapter 17 verse 7. In Psalm 89 verses 34 through 37, if you just turn over just a couple of pages in the book of Psalms, look what it says in Psalm 89 verse 34. It says, My covenant I will not break. Nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever. Like the moon. Even the faithful witness in the sky. Do you understand when God makes that kind of a promise and says, I need you to understand something. When I make a promise, I keep my promise. This is why it should be so very, very important to you. Because if God can break his promise with Israel, he can make it, He can break his promise with you. And what has God promised you? Forgiveness of sin? Eternal life? Heaven in the future? Are you willing to negotiate those things? Are you willing to negotiate those things with Satan? I read that Nasser, who is the former prime minister of Egypt, repeated this verse almost word for word. Come, let us cut them off from being a nation the day before the six day war. Let's make sure they're gone. The tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moabites, Hagarites. Who are these people? Let's let's look just for a moment. The tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagarites. Who are these people? The tents of Edom. These are the descendants of Esau. These are the people who lived in southeast Israel or modern Jordan, the Ishmaelites. These are the descendants of Abram and Hagar, the Bedouin tribes. Fruchtenbaum suggests these are the descendants of all modern Arab peoples. Moab, the descendants of Lot, tribal peoples living east of the Jordan River. The Hagarites, the Egyptians. Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre. Gebel, who is that? There seems to be a dispute over their identity. Is this a tribal group that's south of the Dead Sea near Petra in Edom? Some Bible teachers teach that. Salas, Reagan, Fruchtembaum, all place these people as being from Lebanon. Ammon, northern Lebanon. Amalek, the Arab south of Israel. The whole Sinai Peninsula. Philistia, Palestinian refugees. Hamas, the Gaza Strip. Israel will probably have to invade the Gaza right now. But do you know who Gaza was in the ancient world? These are the Philistines. This is the place where Goliath is from. Why is this such an important thing? And again, even as you look at these people groups, Assyria, that's Syria and Iraq. Assyria has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Who are the children of Lot? Moab. Ammon. On the eastern border of Jordan. Now you need to understand something. Jordan has been relatively quiet. And fairly supportive of Israel. But if Egypt. And Syria. And Lebanon. All propose to invade. Again. Will Jordan go with them. Or against them. The Jordanians I believe will go with them. Assyria was a dominant force in the region in the 8th century BC. They took the northern tribes captive, 722. They took smaller nations like Moab to accomplish the military goals. So when it says Assyria has joined with them, they have helped the children of Lot. Assyria in the ancient world would take these two vassal states and would use them as pawns in order to fight a surrogate war on their behalf. And that seems to be exactly what's happening right at this very moment. The question tonight. Will Israel be pushed to the brink? Will they be placed in a position to have no choice but to protect themselves from the surrounding nations? And by the way. Psalm 83 from verse 9 to the end of the chapter is a petition for victory. But you know what the text doesn't say? Who will win and who will lose? Isn't that interesting? The text is silent. Who will win and who will lose? But I'm going to suggest to you that Israel will win. Why I'm going to suggest to you that if you look at that map, the way it is drawn right now in 1948, if I could show you a map of what the Middle East looked like from 1940 to 1946, it would blow your mind. And I should have put the map up. But this map has changed from 1948, 1967. And you'll remember that this uh, present Administration suggested that Israel return to the indefensible borders prior to 1967, which would result in Jerusalem and all of the land east of Jerusalem to be part of the modern state of Jordan. But what will happen? What will happen if push comes to shove and Israel has to defend itself and its borders? I'm going to suggest to you that if there are, in fact, three different invasions that are listed, that this invasion might be separate from the Gog and the Magog invasion and that Israel runs the risk of literally expanding its borders. In the weeks ahead, we're going to explore whether or not these events are linked with or separate from the future war of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter thirty eight and thirty nine. And the news follow the news. The prime minister of Israel, like I said, is making some difficult decisions even as we speak. And it would appear that the people of of Israel are literally at that point where they go, am I going to be able to live in fear every single night? I should read to you um, Joel's post. He writes about the urgent prayer. He says, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, other Palestinian terror organizations backed by Iran are firing rockets. He just posted this today. Missiles and mortars and innocent civilians. He talked about it being a crime. He talked about the prayer. He talked about they're living under the constant threat and the schools are closed down. The businesses are closed down. At 1215, their local time, he says, I'm listening to Hamas official being interviewed live on CNN International, who's justifying the rocket attacks on Israel from Gaza because Israel is an occupier. In other words, they're not occupying Gaza. They're occupying their own land. National Security Minister Avi Dichter in Beersheba. We have no intention to end this round of fighting and suffer more hits in the next. During Operation Cast Lead, we didn't have Iron Dome batteries. The Iron Dome is a dome that they have, it's an it's a anti rocket uh, defense system that is. Isolating, capturing, and destroying most of the rockets that are coming into you, into Israel. Security cabinet authorized the, the Israeli defense to draft reservists, expand the Gaza operation, and they're making the decision, even as we're having this meeting, whether or not they're gonna go into Gaza and occupy it. So what will happen? What will happen? What will happen if Israel decides to defend itself? Will our president and this administration put pressure on an already pressured Israel to make safety and security concessions? Will the PLO leader continue to snub? Our foreign policy and our leaders will the president further enrage and alienate Israel supporters in Congress and make it impossible even for our own country to heal and be reconciled and go forward in our own deep problems. So is there one invasion? Is there two invasions or is there three invasions or are all three of those invasions? In fact, one invasion What about the war described in Revelation chapter six, where another war is described that takes place as soon as the tribulation breaks out? What does that war have to do with the invasions of Israel? The Bible describes an antichrist who come into world power through a global currency collapse, seize power in Europe, resort to military power to conquer Asia, Africa and South America. But how is that possible as Chinese as China now has the largest army in the world? What about the nuclear war described in Revelation chapter eight and nine? And of course, what about the war that's described in heaven in Revelation chapter 12? And how are we to think about the Arab states and God's kingdom? I'm going to suggest to you that a great insight is given to us by Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his great book, The Footsteps of the Messiah. He writes in determining the place of the Arab states in the kingdom, it should be viewed from the backdrop of the Arabs perpetual hatred against the Jews with a special guilt falling upon Edom. That's modern southern Jordan. Ultimately, peace will come. And this is the good news. Peace will come between Israel and the various states. It's going to be talked about in Isaiah. It's going to be talked about in Ezekiel. It's going to be talked about in the book of Revelation as we continue our study. Ultimate, ultimate peace will take place between Israel and the various states. But it will come one of three ways. Number one, by means of occupation. Number two, by means of destruction. Or number three... By means of conversion. Occupation, destruction, conversion. More Muslims are coming to Christ than ever before in the history of humanity. But it's interesting. What's going to happen? Next week, we should know more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem and we pray for even. These Arab nations. Lord, we know that we were men and women. Who were in disobedience, defiance. Lord, the Bible says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, I suspect that it's not too big of a stretch to think that each and every one of us, those of us who know you and love you, who've been saved by grace through faith. That there was a time of wickedness and rebellion and disobedience. We fought against you. We rebelled against you. We wanted to go our own way. We we didn't want to see Jesus Christ as king and Lord. We wanted to be king and Lord of our lives. And then we discovered something that we were sinners in need of a savior and that in order to have a right relationship with you, we would have to confess our sin and allow Jesus to forgive our sin. And Heavenly Father, we understand how easy it is to be blinded by Satan. Lord, we know that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And so, Heavenly Father, even tonight, Lord, we pray that the chains would be broken and the lenses that blind these men and women who are surrounding Israel, that they would see the foolishness and wickedness, that you have a plan and a purpose both for Israel and these nations. Lord, we pray that peace would come, but we also pray, Lord, that your will would be done. Lord, we know that the Bible says so far as it's possible, live at peace with all people. But, Lord, we're also keenly aware that the Bible teaches that that's not going to happen. That at some point, once again, the nations surrounding Israel are going to make a pact and a confederation. And unanimity, they are going to purpose in their hearts to destroy Israel and remove it forever. But, Lord, again, we know that you have a plan and a purpose, you have unfinished business with that place and with those people. And that, Lord, you have unfinished business with us, with this place and with these people. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray and believe that you will keep your promises to Israel and that you will keep your promises to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. This is how it begins. Let's stand. You alone can rescue, you alone can save, you alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find. post from Joel in Israel. I wish I had this graphic for you. It's post.